Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. This sermon you are about to listen to is from our study through the New Testament book of James. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form that you will fill out so that we can get to know you better. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. One more time, would you give the Lord just a hand clap of praise? He is Lord, Lord of all. Lord of all. Well, I I just want to just say I am excited just to be here and to rejoice in just what God is doing in and through our church to look at the new facility, uh, more space for people who don't know Christ as Lord, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, to pass from death to life. I got fired up just watching the baptisms out there and the spirit of celebration that's here. Uh, and yet, and yet, um, just sitting in this service, we understand that ultimately it's not about bricks and mortar. To, to hear the story about the hub ministry and, and those who are considered to be the least of these, who are being reached out to and t- being taken care of. Just last week we learned that, that that's pure and undefiled religion. Amen. To look after widows and orphans in their distress. So God is on the move here in Vegas, and it's just a delight to jump in what he's been doing. If you've got your Bibles, meet me in James chapter 2 as we just continue on in our series walking through the book of James. Uh, I'm excited to just share with you uh, the opening uh, 13 verses of James chapter 2. I want to lift up some thoughts and we can get on with the rest of our evening. James writes these words, pick me up in verse 1 of James chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, "You, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. 
so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Will you pray with me? God, I feel like um, even as I've just sat in my study and been preparing uh, this message to share with your people, Lord God, you've taken me to the woodshed. I see this all over in my own heart, how I can just drop and all of a sudden find, find room in my schedule for those I esteem to be important, and how I can become just too busy for those I, I esteem to be insignificant. So I don't come here in a posture of, uh, of condemnation or judgment. I, I come as a fellow pilgrim, a fellow traveler, beating my own chest and saying, woe is me, I need a Savior. And so we're reminded this evening that the Jesus that we serve didn't live in a gated community. Nothing wrong with gated communities. He couldn't even get a room in an inn. He came, was born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's the Jesus we serve. And so help us. Show us, Holy Spirit, just, just reveal where we've fallen short and fill in those gaps with your grace. For it is your kindness that leads to repentance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, back in the day, um, uh, old buildings were heated by these boiler rooms. And if you went down to these boiler rooms, you'd, of course, you'd see a huge boiler. And attached to many of these boilers would be a little small glass with some water in it. Now, that little small glass attached to this big boiler, uh, it was a gauge, that let, you knew, that let you know how the boiler is doing. So if that little small glass had like half filled with water, that boiler was half filled with water. If it was three-fourths filled with water, it lets you know the boiler was three-fourths filled with water. In other words, if you wanted to know how the big boiler was doing, just looked at, look at the little glass gauge. In much the same way, friends, if you really want to know how you and God are doing, look at the gauge and how you treat people who've been made in his image. How you treat other people is a good indication on where you really are with God. Not how many verses you've memorized, not how many, you know, consecutive quiet time streaks you have. It's how do you treat people, regardless of their tax bracket, regardless of their gender, regardless of their color. How do you treat people who've been made in the image of God? As our own pastor, Pastor Vance, uh, says about this, he says, the experience of the grace of God in our lives always results in the expression of the grace of God through our lives towards others. I mean, this just isn't a good saying, even though I love it. 
It's, it's based out of 1 John chapter 4. Look at what John says. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, ugh, John says, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So I just want you to understand, if you really want to know how you and God are doing, how do you relate to others, and not just others, but folk who don't look like you, act like you, think like you, or vote like you? Uh-oh, he's meddling. I mean, this is all over the Bible. This is all over the Bible. For example, if you went to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus pretty much says this, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. If you are nursing grudges against people who have offended you and you are refusing to forgive them, Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? I've forgiven you of everything you've ever done, are doing, and will ever do to break my heart, and yet you're nursing a grudge over one thing a person's done to you? That's out of step with the gospel. Oh, I could, oh y'all, y'all gonna talk to a chocolate preacher tonight. I love that. I could take you to Luke chapter 12 or Matthew chapter 25, where in these passages, Jesus says, a greedy Christian is an oxymoron. Did you know we got saved by the generosity of God? God gave his only son. Jesus gave his only life. I got three sons. I love you. And my boys get on my nerves but I ain't giving up one of my three for you, and God is so generous, he gave his only son for you, and all of a sudden, you want to be greedy and hoard the blessings of God? That's incompatible with the gospel. Let's go one more. Just like an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron, a greedy Christian is an oxymoron, Galatians chapter 2, fasten your seatbelts, Paul says a racist Christian is an oxymoron. Paul says, I had to confront another apostle by the name of Peter, because prior to the Judaizers, these Jews showing up, Peter was sitting with his Gentile friends, eating ribs, chitlins, all that stuff. (laughs) Vegas people don't know about chitlins, y'all don't. Teddy, we know about chitlins, right? Because you're from Camden. And then all of a sudden, the Jews show up, and you withdraw from them, acting like you don't know the Gentiles anymore. You're separating from them based on ethnic and racial preferences and convenience. And Paul says in Galatians 2, word for word, quote, Peter, your conduct is out of step with the gospel. The tragedy of so many Christians is I'm good enough to be your brother in Christ, just not your brother-in-law. And we can dress it up and pretty it up all we want. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. To be sure, our text is 
not about race. It's not about racism. It's really about another unsanctified ism. It's classism. Here, he's interested in dealing with, navigating within the local ecclesia, the local church, the local body of Christ, how rich and poor are to navigate with one another. Now, this is an amazing theme that we're going to keep bumping our heads against as we make our way through the book of James. It comes up in almost every single chapter. James is constantly talking about, okay, I want to address how rich and poor get along. I want to deal with this in this church. Now, let me just say this. This is a good problem. The fact that James is writing a local church about how rich and poor should navigate one another now that their identity is no longer in what they have or don't have, but their identity is in Christ. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is a good problem. It tells us in the local church there are rich and poor. Now here's here's my problem. Let me just call a time out here. The tragedy of this text is that if James were writing today, he wouldn't need to write most American churches. It's a shame. We can drive down the street and go, that's the rich church. That's the poor church. That's the black church. That's the white church. The thing that I love about our church, Hope, is we are a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Yet James says, we've got to talk about it. James comes right out the gate. I, I love it. He says, look at it again, verse 1, James chapter 2, he says, my brothers, here's the key phrase, if you miss this, you're going to miss this little Sunday school lesson, show no partiality. James is writing in Greek, and the Greek word for partiality, it literally means to lift the face. It means to turn your face towards one person or one direction. They've got your attention. And at the same time, to turn your face away from other people, which means in one fell swoop, you're honoring some and dishonoring others. If I could just kind of label this or modernize the language, this idea of partiality, turning the face, it is really the idea of discrimination. James is clear, do not discriminate. Now, what does it mean to discriminate? I need you to get this because if you miss this, you'll miss the whole thing. Here's what it means to discriminate. It means that we look at a person's outside to determine their worth on the inside. To discriminate means we look at a person's outside to determine their worth on the inside. James says that may work in the world. But now that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is not how we are to relate to one another. Do not look at a... Now, now here's, here's here's the problem. The problem is you and I daily are discipled into a culture that is constantly calling us to discriminate. Constantly. Look, I feel this in my own life. 
I, I got three teenage sons. And, um, you know, every time we go to, like, open up a bank account for one of them, I always tell them, I, I, I need you to dress up and I, I need you to look presentable. Why? Because I understand the very reality that people are going to be looking at their outside to determine their worth on the inside. Now, l- let me just put myself all the way out there. If I'm at the ATM at 11 o'clock at night, and a car pulls up playing loud music, and a person walks out, a black man with a hoodie, walking up behind me, I'm going to be tempted to turn the face and lift the feet. And I hate to admit that that's in me. But what have I done? I don't know anything about him, but I've just made all kinds of assumptions on who they are simply by assessing the exterior. If you do studies on what the media pays attention to, all the studies say the same thing. If you're a middle class to upper middle class white woman who's been a victim of a violent crime, the media will devote inordinate attention to you than a poor woman of color who's been victimized by the same crime. It's discrimination. As tragic as that is, what's even more tragic is that discrimination doesn't just happen out there. So many churches make room for it in here. So I can just take you back to slavery. Did you know most churches in slavery were multi-ethnic? They were filled with blacks and whites, but they had blacks-only sections, typically up in the balcony. And they had whites-only sections. Can you imagine? There's no way you could preach James 2, 1 through 13 in a setting like that. Sadly, many churches today, if I look at their elder teams or the highest levels of lay leadership, many churches, it's very successful Um, individuals who are middle to upper middle class, uh, working white collar jobs, very rarely do you see a plumber or a landscaper or someone doing a blue collar job. Friends, this is discrimination by default. I have a practice. I personally never want to know who gives what. And I'm not saying it's a problem for pastors who do know because I don't even want to be tempted to play favorites. I want to be an equal opportunity abuser. (laughs) I once worked at a church where there was an individual who personally gave a third of the budget, top giver in the church, and he knew it. And if he called for a meeting, you better drop everything. And he just freely expressed his opinion. If he wanted you to change something, you were expected to change it. This is discrimination. James is clear. The body of Christ is to show no partiality. And yet this cuts against the grain of our fallen humanity. We just naturally go, she's got a Louis Vuitton purse. She's got to be somebody. Don't feel bad about your Louis Vuitton purse, by the way. 
They drive a certain car. They've got to be somebody. Friends, I've done a lot of funerals. I've never seen a casket that had a Louis Vuitton purse inside of it. (laughs) Naked we came into this world and naked we shall return. James says, don't do it. Well, pastor, you've kind of called my card. Why is this important? There's a guy by the name of Howard Thurman. Back in the 1940s, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a little small book that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., this was the only book that he carried with him everywhere he went outside of the Bible. In this book, Howard Thurman says these words. Will you look at them with with me? Why is it that Christianity seems impotent to deal radically and therefore effectively with the issues of discrimination and injustices? Is this impotency due to a betrayal of the genius of the religion, or is it due to a basic weakness in the religion itself? The question, Howard writes, is searching for the dramatic demonstration of the impotency of Christianity in dealing with the issue is underscored by its inability to cope with it within its own fellowship. You know what he's saying? We have no moral integrity to challenge injustice and discrimination outside of our walls when we freely practice it inside our walls. This begins with my heart. This begins with your heart. So I want you to understand our fallen nature. We we just naturally play favorites. It's just how we're wired. So I'm not pointing the finger. This is, this is how we're wired. So let's get to the solution side of things. How do, we, how do we root this out? James now moves after his point. Don't, don't show partiality. Don't discriminate. Don't look at a person's outside to determine their worth on the inside. And then he just kind of tells this story of a rich uh, man coming into their assembly. Uh, uh, he's dressed in fine clothing and is wearing gold rings back then. Wealthy men, they, they wore rings on all of their fingers except for the, the middle one. It's sort of, they were like, let me just call on a Vegas person, liberace out. That's how they rolled back then, right? Uh, In fact, what's interesting, a Christian leader writing around this time uh, exhorted Christian men not to do that. Instead, he said, if you have to wear a ring, Christian men, I I want you to wear a a pinky ring with with, with maybe a cross as an emblem. Travis, you got your pinky ring with you. He he, he wanted them to do that. Don't dress like the world. And then he says in verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts, evil thoughts, evil thoughts? Now he's getting to the meditations of our heart. Notice what he's saying. Discrimination does not begin with your hands. It begins with your heart. So if I really want to deal with discrimination, I've got to deal with my heart. My grandfather, uh, when he was 78 years old, was having uh, chest pains, went to, the, went to the doctor. Doctor ran through a battery of tests, and, and he told him, well, uh, Mr. Loritz, you're going to need a triple bypass surgery. 
None of us were surprised by that. My, my grandfather just ate horribly. He was a smoker all of his life. Um, and, and so the doctor says, in essence, you're, you're, you're going to need us to address your heart. Now, what's interesting is the doctor didn't say to him, you've got some heart issues, so here's all I want you to do. Stop smoking and eat right. He didn't just deal with his behavior. Now, if, if all he would have said to a man who had three clogged arteries was just stop smoking and eat right, deal with your actions, deal with your behavior, that's malpractice. Now, now, now did my grandfather need to deal with his behavior? Absolutely. But before he could get to his behavior, he had to do something he could not do on his own. His heart had to be addressed. And he couldn't do it himself. He needed someone to do something that he could not do for himself. And that is, in essence, to give him a new heart. Listen, I, I'm grateful for Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Because of them, I can drink out of any water fountain I want, sleep in any southern hotel I want. It's beautiful. I, I, I just love all of that. But here's what I want you to understand. The problem with the civil rights movement is while government can change laws, it cannot change hearts. You can't legislate discrimination away. You can't legislate classism away. That is not in the government's purview of responsibility, but I know a man who can fix it and who can give us a new heart. His name is Jesus Christ. And so if you say, that's me, pastor, I've, I've got the issue here. How do I fix it? Fly to Jesus. He's the one who can address your heart. But secondly, yes, it's not just an issue of our hearts. Secondly, it's an issue of our hands. What we're getting at here are our actions. So we need a new heart, but we also need new hands. We need new actions. Look at what he says in verse 8. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, stop right there. What is the royal law? What, what is that? What's the law that's over every other law? Well, what is that? It's, it's love. He says, here's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that, 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 that great love chapter many of us had read at our weddings. Now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus would say it this way in John 13. Jesus would say, by this will all people know that you're my disciples, not by the arguments you have on Facebook. Not by all the theology you've learned not by the church you attend, but by the love that you have for one another. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that love is the birthmark of the believer. My middle son has a prominent birthmark uh, on his forehead. Uh, if you were to line up somebody who looks exactly like him, almost indistinguishable, the first thing I want to look for is is Miles' birthmark. It's what sets him apart. And I'm going to be able to distinguish him from every other kid. I don't care how much that other kid may look like him. It's the birthmark that distinguishes him. 
He says, listen, Hope, what distinguishes us from the world is the birthmark of love. What is love, though? The prominent New Testament word for love, it's, it's agape. And agape is a sacrificial kind of love that, that, that does whatever it takes to help the object of love flourish. In other words, biblical love, here it is, it is inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of others. It is, it is others-oriented. That's what biblical love is. Jesus illustrates this when he's asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He tells him, and he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy in Luke 10 says, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, you want to know who your neighbor is? He tells the story of a good Samaritan who finds a man who's beaten down. The implication is the man who's beaten down is a Jew. This good Samaritan who is what the Jews consider to be an ethnic half-breed, lower than them, does something the other Jews don't do. The priest and the Levites pass by. This lowly ethnic half-breed, according to the Jews, stops, puts him on his mule, is inconvenienced in his schedule, takes money out of his pocket, cares for his need, tells the innkeeper, if there's anything else you need, charge it to my account. Jesus says, that's love. In other words, look at it with me. What Jesus and James are showing us is that biblical love transgresses ethnic and economic lines. So then, Brian, if all of your friendships are people who look like you, if all of your friendships are, are people in your tax bracket, you're not loving in the way of Jesus. In other words, look at it this way. Jesus and James are saying you cannot discriminate in love all at once. It is a biblical impossibility to show favorite and to love at the same time. Finally, discrimination is a problem with our hearts. It's a problem with our hands. But thirdly and finally, it's a problem with our eyes. He ends by saying in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, James is saying, here's the ridiculous thing. You're basing people's self-worth over temporal things. Are you kidding me? Gold rings? It's not going with you to heaven. Are you kidding me? The size of their house? You ain't taking that with you to glory. When I die, my wife is going to cry a little bit. And then she'll think about that life insurance check. And she has strict instructions for me. You better not spend it on the next dude. I will come up out this bad boy. But that's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. He says, I'm going to spend all my life working 
only to leave it to someone else. So the maddening part of my own heart is why are you judging people based on the temporary things of this life? Will you think with me back in high school? I'm going to date myself. I was in high school, late 80s, early 90s. You know who we thought the cool kids were? Anybody in high school, late 80s, early 90s? Right? You know who we thought the cool kids were? They had stonewashed jeans. They had a jerry curl. Anybody here know what a jerry curl is? I see a whole lot of chocolate hands across. They had mullets. They had members-only jackets, although their members-only jackets are coming back. And they drove Honda Preludes. Anybody remember Honda Preludes? These were the cool kids. We esteemed them. Oh, I want to be like them. I begged my dad for a jerry curl and thank God for a godly dad who did not let that happen because someone would have put it on their Instagram feed and that would have been the end of my life. But just think, jerry curls and mullets and Honda preludes and stonewashed jeans and members-only jackets. If someone were to walk in here today with a jerry curl, stonewashed jeans, members-only jacket, don't ask her for her phone number. (laughs) So just as I go, how foolish it was for me to esteem that. 20-something years, 30-something years later, it's gone just like that. There's going to come a time, the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. I don't care how many kale salads you eat. God's going to say, give me back my breath. And what will you have to show for it? You know what James is saying? You're going to stand before him in judgment. Live for what matters now. Paul says it this way. We're winding down. Paul says it this way. Look at it with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. We're going to stand before God in the judgment. All right, pastor, can you give me something practical to work on? Let me give you three things. Let me, get, let me end this with some vitamin A. Three things that I just... I use to go to war daily as much as possible with discrimination in my own heart. It's the acronym ARC, A-R-C, Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. One of my closest friends, it happens to be a, a, a white gentleman, and, and as we're building our friendship, he said to me, look, Brian, I, I just want you to know I I prayed about a friendship with a person like you a year in advance. He says, I looked around my own life and I just realized all my friendships just look the same. And he says, "I, I just became aware that I wanted my friendships to look like the kingdom of God. So he just became aware. And he just started praying. 
to take it out of an ethnic piece, what would it look like for us to start praying about building friendships with the poor? Not just to help them, because I got news for you. If we let ourselves, they'll bless us far more than we will ever bless them. But first of all, be aware. Be aware of the biases in your own heart. Be aware of what's missing in your own life. Be aware. And secondly, build relationships. Proximity breeds empathy. Distance breeds suspicion. Proximity breeds empathy. Distance breeds suspicion. You need relationships with people who are just different than you. You you know, it's hard for me to be racist with people whose feet are under my dinner table. It's hard for me to write off a whole group of people when they're over my house all the time. Build relationships. And then thirdly, commit to something by way of life. Listen, I just began to be aware of my own life. I'll I'll never forget that I don't really have friendships with the down and outs of society. But listen, we're all broken people. We're all broken people. Uh, The the problem with middle-class brokenness, we have more fig leaves to hide under. We're all broken. But I needed to actually travel with people who were in tune with their brokenness. So what I did... I signed up to serve at a rehab center on on Mondays. Best period of my life. And I was there. I said, I'm not here to teach Bible study. I'm just here to scrub toilets. And I'd love to sit and eat lunch with these brothers and just get to know them. And I'm hearing their stories. And they're coming over my house. And we're enjoying company with one another. But that doesn't happen by osmosis. You need that as a means of your own growth. And so we need that kind of commitment. Stories told of the time in which um, the Pope had to speak at the United Nations. And so he gets on his plane there in Italy, he flies over, but there's bad weather uh, in New York. And so he's got to land in Newark, New Jersey, which means he's running dangerously close to missing his speaking engagement. He hops in the limousine, tells the limousine driver, I got to speak to the United Nations. I need you to punch it. I need you to drive really fast. And he realizes the guy's not driving fast. He's driving really slow. And the Pope's like, what's up? He didn't say, what's up? I need you to drive really fast. And the guy says, well, I can't because I've got a couple of outstanding warrants. And if I get pulled over, that's the end of, you know, my business. They're going to take my license. Pope says, pull over has him get in the back and the Pope drives and man, he's punching it. He's driving real fast, weaving in and out of traffic and speeding. And sure enough, the cops pull him over. Cop comes up to the driver's side, tells him to roll down his window. He rolls down the window. Cop looks at him, shakes his head, tells him, you can go on. Goes back to the other cop and the other cop goes, why didn't you write the ticket? Guy goes, you have no idea who's in that car. The other cop goes, well, it can't be more important than the mayor. Yeah, it's more important than the mayor. Can't be more important than the president. Yeah, he's more important than the president. Well, who is he? Cop goes, I don't know, but he had to be really important because the Pope was driving him. (laughs) 
Listen. If you're behind the wheel of your life, if you're behind the wheel of your life, you can't do any of this. You won't do any of this. But if Jesus is truly behind the wheel of your life, if you love him, then you'll want to do it because you love him more than anything. Thank you for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.